The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. What a unique time in the life of Pillar, huh? Uh, how thankful we are that we can communicate uh, this way, see one another's faces, study God's Word together. Um, certainly not a replacement for our, the Sunday gathering when we are truly face-to-face uh, as the body of Christ. Um, but thankful for these means and, and also how it really shows us by experience that we are not united by a building, by a physical building, but we are united by the Spirit of Christ, that the church is each individual member of the body of Christ. And, and so even in this circumstance where we're honoring um, the, the governing authorities, being careful during this time of pandemic, um, we can still collectively gather. And for that, I'm thankful. And, um, and also, I think we're, we're learning really, again, by experience that, that the church is not a building, that it, that it is the household of the living God, each individual soul redeemed soul, rescued soul by the blood of Christ. And so as a church um, gathered this way, um, let's go before our Father in prayer before we get into his word. And Father, we we are gathered in in one spirit. And that verse I know is familiar, uh, likely to all, but even in this experience now, um, how how very true it is um, on display. We're not physically gathered in a building, but gathered with one purpose, one united purpose, and that is to worship our Lord and Savior, Savior, to worship Jesus. We thank you, God, that there is no restraints um, to this, God, that we can join in this way. And it, it is not a replacement for the gathering of the saints uh, who, who assemble together on a regular basis, but, but when that is restrained, it doesn't restrain us in the spirit to do so, with the same spirit and heart, God, to encounter you. And so I pray, Almighty God, that you would permit um, an encounter this morning, that through your word and by the, share, the spirit that we share in Christ within us, that we would uh, collectively have imparted from you a word to nourish us, to sanctify us, to renew our minds and thinking, to prepare our hearts to love and to serve you in this world each day that we live it. God bless your church, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen? I need some head nods. What do you think, Zeke? Amen? (laughs) All right. Um... We are in Mark 12, chapter 35, or excuse me, chapter 12, verse 35. Still getting used to this here. Um, And though we are giving our attention to this text this morning, this text um, 
recorded for us in the, in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, I'm actually going to start us off with a few passages from Luke's Gospel account of Jesus Christ that are in much proximity to the time and place we are currently at in the life of Jesus in Mark's Gospel. It's a, it's a bit of a glance ahead of when Jesus is teaching on the signs of the closing of this age. So turn with me to, to Luke's Gospel, actually, in chapter 21. Let's go ahead and turn there. Luke's Gospel, chapter 21. And we're going to start with verse 10, reading through verse 19. Luke 21. Luke Gospel. <laughs> I'm hearing a voice. Uh, reading through verse 19 with a special attention on verses 14 and 15. So let's start there. We are going to be in Mark, of course, but I want to start here in chapter 21, starting in verse 10. God's word says here, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Are you calling me, Jason? Okay, no. So, Settle it therefore in your minds. Verse 14 and 15. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to contradict. I mean, what, what a marvelous promise. And we have seen our Lord demonstrate this over and over again these last few weeks, have we not? Discourse after discourse, Jesus is having in the temple with adversary after adversary who are attacking him with these questions, who then find themselves just silenced, not able to withstand or contradict the great wisdom by which... No, I'm hearing a ring. By which Jesus... Sorry. By which, by which Jesus answered them. And though his, this passage is speaking of answering our adversaries during the close of the age, I believe it will also be helpful and well applied to how we give a response to, question, to questions asked of us by those who are not followers of Christ. Especially at the time we find ourselves now where great fear is gripping the souls of men and women who have no secure hope. Their world is collapsing around them, and they are frightened. 
And even if they, if they are not taking seriously this pandemic, this pandemic at hand, all other areas where one may have false security in are in dire jeopardy because of it. So we as Christians, we want, we want to meet them wherever they are at with the mouth of wisdom from above. Not with, not with some rehearsed statement, a blanket response with biblical undertone and, and a passage of scripture to back it up with. No. There is a stark contrast between, between that and one being filled with the Spirit of God, whom God puts into the mouth, into their mouth, words of wisdom from above to speak in that moment. Speak in that moment truth the listener is not able to withstand or contradict. We are instructed to not settle it therefore in our minds, nor, nor meditate beforehand how we are to answer. And Jesus promises, he promises to provide the words that we are to speak in that moment. He's been demonstrating this for us in our passage this morning, or he has been demonstrating it for us, and in our passage this morning, he provides instruction for us to be ready and fit for those moments that will, listen, will come. I'm sure they have already for many of you. They will come, more of them. Let's do a, let's do a short recap of some of the events leading towards the cross since Jesus' return to Jerusalem. Remember, once that shift took place, where his face is just, you know, it's set toward Jerusalem, toward the cross to atone for his bride, to suffer and be crucified. He's walking distinctly ahead of his disciples to their amazement. You know, he's pressing hard towards Jerusalem, towards that which he spoke plainly to them would be his death, that he's going to be killed there. Jesus arrives to Jerusalem and he stays with Lazarus, Martha, and, and, and Mary's, their house at Bethany, which lies just a short distance outside of Jerusalem. He resided there after raising Lazarus from the grave and also where the place where Mary anoints him with that expensive ointment that she intended for his burial. That's where that took place, just outside of Jerusalem, just before he enters Jerusalem, his, his entrance. And, and it would be the day prior to the, the Holy Week. I've been given thought to that this last week, the Holy Week, six days before the Passover. Holy Week is that, is that full week span, Sunday to Sunday, full week span in which Jesus enters Jerusalem, spends time in the temple, is betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, buried, and then raises from the grave on the start of a new week. I said that wrong. Holy Week is Sunday through Saturday, and he raises on the start of a new week, Sunday. We are at day three. That's where we are at in the text this morning in Mark chapter 12. Day three, at Tuesday, two days before the Last Supper, the Passover meal he shares with his 12 disciples, which takes place on a Thursday night. After midnight, Friday morning, early Friday morning, he would be betrayed, arrested, and by the end of that same very day, that Friday, he'd be crucified. 
So day one, Sunday, known as Palm Sunday, relating to the palm branches, the people are gathering from the fields to place before him, bestowing praise and honor. This is when King Jesus has his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, fulfilling prophecy. Day two, King Jesus cleanses the temple, and, and people are in the temple are astonished at his teaching. Day three, where we find ourselves today in the text, King Jesus is questioned on multiple accounts, on multiple occasions. First, in sequential order, we have, we have seen his authority called into question by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Second, his, he is questioned with malicious intent to induce him to treachery by disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Thirdly, his theology is questioned by Sadducees. And then lastly, and refreshingly, a sincere question is given. What is the greatest commandment? Asked by a listening scribe. King Jesus repeatedly met these questions with a mouth and wisdom which none of his adversaries was able to withstand or contradict. The very thing he promises us he promises to provide us when we are in his shoes. He demonstrated this for us completely and perfectly. And now, now the captain or our captain in the Lord's army, King Jesus, he provides instruction for his soldiers to be ready and fit to answer likewise. You see, we have a, we have a shift here that takes place on this day three in which these controversies have been taking place. Jesus has more or less been in a response mode to these questions, to these attacks, defending truth, exposing their errors at these attacks. Questions have been drilled at him, and all, all but one with evil intent, aimed to discredit him, trip him up, or raise a revolt against him. And Jesus, our fighting and conquering king, in wisdom, turned their attacks upon their own heads. But now, he shifts to the offense. No one dared to ask him any more questions. That was the last verse of last week that, that Jason covered. They, had, they threw all at him all they can get, or all they could, and nothing stuck. They didn't dare to ask him any more questions. It is here where our Lord goes on the offense, and delivers a challenging question, number one, a stern warning, number two, and an example to follow. All which stem from the last question asked by a listening scribe, whom Jesus told was not far from the kingdom of heaven. Remember that question and the answer Jesus gave? What is the greatest commandment? The scribe asked, Jesus replied, The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And even though you're muted, I hear you saying it. I love you, church. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving God. Always operating together. 
Let's not miss that. They are never disengaged. They're always operating together, but each hold a distinct attribute of a soldier of Christ. King Jesus provides instruction for his soldiers to be ready and fit to serve. How does a Christian, a soldier in God's army, know that they are ready to fit, ready and fit to serve? To know with a, with a settled confidence in God to not meditate beforehand on how they are to answer our adversaries. Because we have a trusting resolve in God that he will give us a mouth and wisdom which none of our adversaries will be able to contradict. Our commander-in-chief, King Jesus, provides a decisively indicative test to examine ourselves by, to know that we are ready and fit to serve him and remain so. Stemming from Jesus' answer to the greatest commandment, he now gives a litmus test, you could say, a litmus test, a decisively indicative test to know whether we are ready and fit soldiers by a challenging question, a stern warning, and an example to follow. A litmus test, the greatest commandment of loving God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Jesus gives a litmus test of the greatest commandment for the soldiers in his army. And I know, I know this has been a lengthy intro. I know. But I felt, I felt it necessary. I felt it necessary to do so, to, to establish this firmly. So if it's helpful, you know, put a little more pressure on your pen or pencil and draw a line across your notes if you're taking notes. You know, the foundation is set. Our risen king, the commander-in-chief of the Lord's army, who went before us and obtained the victory on our behalf at the cross of Calvary. He is not passively lying on his couch like David did when it was the time for kings to go to war. That's not where he's at. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, commanding the Lord's army, the Christian, his soldiers, to fight this fight of faith firm to the end. And he is providing for all his ranks a means to know whether they are ready and fit soldiers. At whatever spiritual age they are, okay? Not only for a seasoned saint, but also for babes in Christ. For every Christian soul, whether you came to Christ today or have walked with him for decades, the test applies the same. So let's give, let's give focused attention now to these litmus paper strips, if you will, as a means to decisively test the greatest commandment against ourselves to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And we start in verse 35, reading through the verse 37 in chapter 12 of Mark. So go ahead and please turn back there if you haven't already. And we start here with the challenging question, a litmus paper strip for the mind, you could say. Mark chapter 12, 35 through 37, litmus paper strip for the mind. Now, this question is chiefly directed toward the Pharisees, but Jesus asks it of them publicly. Same as he was 
being asked questions publicly, publicly for all to hear and consider, he likewise delivers this question to them among many listening ears. So ourselves now, with listening ears, let's read his question publicly out loud for us all to hear and consider. 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. The great throng, the mass of people gathered around Jesus, whom the Pharisees were among, heard him gladly. But we read no answer given by the Pharisees. The scribes, the scribes teach this concerning the Christ. It's not a new teaching. Matthew's gospel informs us that Jesus opens this question with, directed towards the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Pharisees answered, the son of David. They knew this. They knew this about the coming Messiah. He is the son of David. Jesus, I love it. He presses the topic deeper. He goes deeper. He says, how then can David call him, call the Christ, the coming Messiah, Israel's promised deliverer? How can David call him Lord and yet have him be his son, be a descendant from the line of David? The Pharisees didn't give an answer. The question is met with silence. It's the same for both Matthew and Luke's account. I picture this this stark contrast of hard-hearted scowl in the faces of these Pharisees to the shining glee of the faces of all the other people, you know, the throng that heard him gladly. And not only did they not provide an answer, you know, the just silenced again, but not only did they not provide an answer, they didn't ask him to please explain it. You know, I don't know, Jesus, could you explain that to me? You know, often the, the disciples were stumped. We see that over and over again, and I'm so glad they asked questions because we were asking the same questions, and we learned by the answer Jesus provided for them. They would ask questions, explain these things to me, Jesus, and he would explain. I believe if the Pharisees, in reply, were to ask Jesus to explain to them how that is, how David can call him Lord, then Jesus would have answered. David, he was in the Spirit. He was divinely inspired when he penned this psalm. Psalm 110, indicating that the Messiah would not only be a royal human descendant of King David, 
but that the Messiah would be David's Lord, holding a distinctly more prominent role than King David himself, connoting the the uniqueness of the Messiah and the great honor that is due him as a son of God, God incarnate, Yahweh King who walks on water. That is who Jesus is. That is the Messiah. That's the answer to that question. The Pharisees didn't ask. The answer to that question from the mouth of Christ was not sought after. The Pharisees didn't didn't seek after it. Which leads me to two conclusions there. They either knew it, they knew the answer, and didn't care to seek out what was required of them for this knowledge, or they didn't know the answer and didn't care to seek out to know and understand it. Both. Both are equally sinful and not the renewed mind a soldier of Christ is to have to be fit and ready. Church, God has provided the canon of Scripture, the Bible, the Holy Bible, God's revelation of himself to us, preserved in written form. His word, and I'm holding it in my hand. Again, maybe you can't see it, but his word, he's provided it. You guys are holding it in your hand. I mean, my, my goodness, how glorious is it that we have this preserved, the inspired word of God. Church, the litmus test, the litmus paper for loving God with all of our mind begins with seeking him in his word. A seeking that cares to know him. Not a, not a going through the motions because, you know, Christians are supposed to read their Bibles. But rather a tenacious, heartfelt pursuit with vigorous mental capacity working. Mental effort put forth to seek him in his word. And yes, it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit whereby our spiritual eyes are opened to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the one who takes center stage in the pages of Scripture. It is a work of grace by the Holy Spirit, given by God, that comes to the one who is sincerely seeking him with all of their mind in his word. You care to know You care to pursue. You ask his help to understand. You ponder and meditate on his word, both for for attaining a firmer grasp on understanding it. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways, right? That's the meditating. That is just the pondering. I am on it so that it's formed in you. Form in you so, that you so that you think biblically and thereby act accordingly as his image bearer, reflecting more of him who satisfies your soul above all else. 
It's our created purpose. To know him, the one who created us. And the more we know him, the more we rejoice in him, the more we enjoy him, and thereby the more abiding satisfaction and peace we have in our lives that bear the great that bear the great and highly privileged responsibility to reflect him in this world. Such a mind fit on seeking God in his word and ready to obey as truth is revealed is a soldier who loves God with all of their mind, regardless of how long you followed Christ. That's what I love about the litmus test here. A 10-year-old saint can love God with all of their mind, same as a saint who has walked with the Lord for decades. It's not the measure of mental intellect that constitutes loving God with all your mind. It's the thoughtful mental energy put forth to pursue and meditate on God's word with resulting obedience to the revealed truth God would grant. Any knowledge of God's word, great or small, only has virtue so long as it stems from a love for him. That's what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. From here, our Lord gets, he gets a bit more aggressive. The other gospel accounts exhibit it more so than Mark's. But nevertheless, it is something Jesus takes very seriously and gives stern warning to the Pharisees, but also warning all can and should take to heart and even place as a litmus test for our hearts. Our second point, in Mark chapter 12, 38 through 40, the litmus paper strip for the heart. So let's place place your eyes on verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. What is your religion about? What is the central driving force 
of all your physical and spiritual life. Jesus sternly rebukes scribes. And in Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees are included. And I mean, he is raising his voice in doing so. And not just a little. There is bold exclamation points after the word hypocrites following each given woe. Jesus hates the evil of those who claim to be lovers of God and don't live in accordance to it. He hates every evil, but this one, I believe, especially. The Pharisees and scribes were ones ones in positions to lead the people in the counsel of God's word. They were looked to as examples of worshipers of God, as ones, those who, they, they directed people in their worship of God. That was their position. And instead, they abused the people and leveraged their position to draw attention to themselves. Whether it was the distinguishing, eye-catching garments they purposely wore to portray an elite piousness, where they sat at at esteemed gatherings, the props given to them when, when they were greeted by others, showboating their ability to pray at length, or exploiting those who are socially discarded while pretending to be pious in the process rather than actually standing up for them. It was was all about them. They were center stage. In short, the driving force of their religion The heart of it all was all about showcasing themselves. And evil Jesus hates and strictly warns against. That last verse, they will receive the greater condemnation. Whoa! There is no misinterpreting there. They will receive the greater condemnation condemnation. Those who, would, those who should know better because they have the knowledge of God's word, God's law, and yet make their belief system about themselves, they will receive the greater condemnation. It's what the, the writers of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10. Get ready for this. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant 
by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Outraged the spirit of grace. Did you hear that? Outrage and grace in the same sentence. The equivalent today is those who leverage their knowledge of God's word for personal gain. To bolster whatever whatever self-ambition is driving them. Self-promotion is at the heart of all their religion, not Christ. They showcase themselves and place Jesus' name on it. They will receive the greater condemnation. And equally, Outrageous in the sight of God are those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, have heard the word spoken to them, taught to them, instructed to them, call themselves Christians, have been baptized, go to church, and so forth, yet do not take sin seriously, but worship, give themselves to it with an attitude of, I'm saved by grace. It's all good in the hood. Jesus is my homeboy. Neither, neither is likened to a regenerate heart and certainly not a soldier of Christ who loves God with all their heart. It is likened, rather, to those who would have a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. That is their end. But those who love God with all of their heart, they desire more than anything for their lives to make much of Him. Their religion is about magnifying the name of Jesus Christ and his gospel. They showcase, they showcase Jesus' words and his work. They place him at center stage where he belongs. Doing so is at the heart of what drives every decision, every motive, every pursuit. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him, a soldier of Christ. At whatever age they are, young or old, who loves God with all of their heart and therefore is driven from the heart with an aim to please him in all they do to the praise and glory of God. That is a soldier who is ready and fit to serve. Jesus takes, he takes a seat now 
He takes his seat now in the closing passages of our text this morning. And it's, it's a seat mindfully selected by him who places a close eye on an example for us to follow, demonstrating where our strength is to lie. Our third point I intend to expound on, of a litmus test on loving God with all our strength. Litmus test paper for our strength, verses 41 through 44. Look at these closing passages together, shall we? 41 through 44. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, as as previously stated, Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength always operate together. For this widow's heart, her soul, her mind, are certainly engaged in this act of love. But we can distinctly draw focused attention to her her attribute of strength present here, which actually is seemingly not present. Her strength, her ability, her vitality is essentially void as an impoverished widow who possesses only two two small copper coins that, that make a penny. Yet she is commended in the giving of those two small copper coins far above all the many rich people who gave large sums out of their abundance. Something Jesus is looking closely at, purposely sitting down to examine. And he sees this, and he he tells this to his disciples. She has given more than all of them. What does she have that they didn't? What does she have that they didn't? They put in large sums. Money can do a lot. We are in a time of crisis as a nation, right? Most, if not all of us here, will receive a stimulus check from the government as a strengthening aid during this trying time. It like it like. It likely won't make the stock market strong soon, right? But the intent is to help strengthen the crippling economy, to give it some bolster sum to help carry us through this pandemic. And listen, 
if I receive, if my family receives a, 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 a stimulus check, I don't intend to return it. It will help buy food, pay bills, compensate for lost hours not worked, or compensate for hours not worked. You know, money helps. There is a lot of ability and might money brings. A lot of strengthening to a hurting situation. But the large sum they gave didn't compare. All of theirs together didn't compare to the two small copper coins worth a penny that the widow put in, that she gave. What does she have that they didn't. Every bit of her strength, of her ability that she possessed, she gives to the Lord. What she does have, as meager and insignificant as it was, is given and entrusted entirely to God, whom she trusts to provide for her. She is not holding on to any of it. All she possessed was placed in God. That is what Jesus is drawing the disciples' attention to, and I hope ours as well. Where does your strength lie? Where does your strength lie? When we are young, and full of vigor, there's a lot we can accomplish. But are we to feel less useful in God's hands when the aging body steadily depletes our strength? Psalm 71.9, Don't cast me off in time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent, the psalmist cries out. Now, is that the trajectory of a soldier of Christ? Strong for him in their youth, but weak for him in old age, or as a new believer even? It is if your strength is determined by your state of health, or current age, or maturity, or even social status, how much you have in your bank, but it is a constant when your strength is supplied by God. Psalm 84, 5 through 7, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And I just love that verse. I think of highways like free-flowing. It's nothing stopping there and back, the source of my strength. It's just, I love that picture. As they, those whose strength is in God, as they go through the valley of Baca, which is a barren desert, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools, implying a mighty force of life and vitality this strength from God brings. Wherever they go, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. 
strength to strength, all through life, all through life, each one, wherever you are at in your walk with Christ, you draw strength from God. When your strength is in Him, it is like that highway. It is entirely expended back to Him out of love for Him, who is the source of your strength, which brings forth life and vitality wherever you go to His glory. That strength is a constant, whether you are wherever, through your whole life. What does this look like every day? What does this look like every day out of passion for Him? All that you are able. Let me slow down there a little bit. Out of passion for Him, love for Him, who is the source of your strength, all that you are able to do, whatever skill and giftedness He has blessed you with, at any age, whatever resources are at your disposal at all hours of the day, are happily recognized to be at his disposal and readily available for his use. As an 88-year-old man, the Lord tarries. My strength can be spent in prayer, drawing from him the strength to pray as David expresses in the Psalms. It's still vibrant, earth-shattering strength of God that that can move mountains. As a 95-year-old man, I could share my story with a 14-year-old young man of what God has taught me and point him, point this, this just generation who is rising up before me, point him to the God I worship who has sustained me and strengthened me. There is strength there that is incomparable whatever the age. A seven-year-old boy could weep because of sin that his parents didn't call out, but he just had by conviction of the Holy Spirit within and broke down and confessed that sin, confessed that lie, whatever it is, there is strength there in that repentance from God that moves parents, that moves siblings, that moves a church when they see the Spirit of God work in that way. Strength has no bounds when its, when its source is God. Soldier, this is a soldier of Christ who loves God with all their strength and is fit and ready to serve him. We'll conclude this morning with a litmus test for the soul. Loving God with all your soul, which simply is being satisfied in Him. Just satisfied in Him. Seeing yourself as a redeemed soul, rescued by Jesus Christ. Your soul is comforted knowing that your life is not your own. You gladly lift up your soul to him who has enlisted you in his army. You belong to God as his servant who loves God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Having each of these operating together in a manner that you are readily attuned into the spirit of Christ within you to answer 
with a mouth of wisdom. But wait a minute, Pastor. Wait a minute. My soul longs to operate perpetually in this manner. But I know I fall short. I fall short on each. I have failed each litmus test. Me too. Me too. The gospel answers back. The gospel answers back. You see, when we fail to do so, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are able to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind and strength by repentance. The heart is struck with conviction of sin. The knowledge of the sin comes into our mind to which we confess with the strength of, of speech as a distressed soul downcast with godly sorrow in need of forgiveness and restoration by the atoning work of Jesus Christ who gave his life and bore our sin on the cross that we may have assurance of forgiveness and be reconciled back to God. True, true repentance is loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength that restores a soldier of Christ to be fit and ready once again with settled confidence in God to not meditate beforehand how we are to answer our adversaries because we have a trusted resolve in God by his promise that he will give us a mouth and wisdom with which none of our adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Whether it be an adversary at the close of the age or our adversary, the devil, accusing us, bringing suggestions to fuel ungodly fears, even in times like now, God will supply the words of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.24, the words of Christ, who has the power of God and the wisdom of God to silence your adversaries. And also, wisdom to quiet a frazzled, a frightful soul frazzled by events happening around them who need to hear those words of peace and hope spoken through you from Christ, who is our peace and our only hope. Fellow Christian, fellow soldier in Christ, be fit and ready to serve him. Let's pray. First of all, Heavenly Father, it's, it's so humbling to know that you have enlisted us 
in your army. If your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are your son, your adopted child through faith in Christ, where we believe the gospel, we are among the ranks of God's army. operating in one spirit, in one purpose, all equally undeserving of this grace, of this position that you have placed us in. Thank you, God. Thank you, and may we rightly recognize and pursue living a life worthy of this enlistment as a soldier of Christ. Keep us as your soldiers, operating in a manner to love you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we may be fit and ready to serve you at all times. God, I know opportunities likely have already come and passed, and more are waiting, appointed. May we meditate upon your word. May we draw strength from you. May we love you and have that settled confidence, God, that those moments when they come, you provide the wisdom, the words of Christ in that moment to speak life, to correct our adversaries, to quiet, frightened souls with the Prince of Peace, the words of God to testify to bear witness what you have done and are doing in our lives. That we're not just making these things up, that these are not just things we read about, though though we do read about them, but they are a part of who we are, God. They are transforming us. That from the heart we can convey that with absolute sincerity, with a desire to see them brought in to this family. And God, where we, where we fail, where our love for you would dim in any of these to any detectable degree, God, may we be quick to repent. As you would grant, God, may we respond with that repentance, loving you back in full force to be restored. And God, help us be fit and ready continually each day. We ask for those opportunities, God. May we be looking for them, actively looking for them, waiting, and so tuned in to your Holy Spirit. God, I thank you for your church. How I I miss their embrace. As thankful as I am to, to have this technology, it does not compare. It does not compare. God, we pray for there to be a mighty work in light of this pandemic. Strengthening your church, drawing people in, exposing all these, these idols, these securities, these pursuits that are just in a moment practically done away with, whether that be recreation, whether that be making 
a lot of money, whatever it is, one's own health. Mere pestilence can take it away in a moment. It exposed the weakness and the emptiness of false pursuits. And may we, as your people, be a light, an invitation to point them to the light of the world, to point them to Christ, the anchor of our souls, who is a constant and who satisfies continually. Thank you, God. Thank you again for your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who's extended grace to us now as we are engaged with one another in the spirit of Christ and love for you and for one another. To the praise of Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.